let me go first. <laughs> well, I've got a sign in my hallway, a trailer we have in southern Illinois, and it says, um, a nagging wife doesn't have good horse sense. So I try to have good horse sense and not nag. <laughs> uh, my name's Joyce, for those of you that don't care to use host claw. And uh, just to give you a little background about it, is that all right tonight? Kind of get acquainted tonight? Okay. We have four children of our own, and God blessed us with a foster son. And we have three daughters now and two sons, and they're all married. And we have 15 grandchildren. Had the 15th one will be three weeks ago this Wednesday night. And so they're all scattered all over the country. We've got one oldest daughter's in Lufkin, Texas. She has four children. Our number two daughter, well, her name's Gloria. Her number two daughter is Karen, and she lives in uh, Grand Prairie, Texas. They just moved there. Grand Prairie, Texas, and they have three children. And her husband's a minister, by the way. And number three daughter, she lives in Noble, Oklahoma, and she gets all our mail and boxes it up and packages it up and mails it wherever we're at all over the country. She's got five boys. So when you pray, pray for her. <laughs> and then um, Daniel, he's um, the fourth child and the first son. <laughs> and he lives in Jackson, Tennessee. He's a registered physical therapist, but most of all, he's a minister for the Lord. And he's got a lovely wife. And then uh, there's Jim. Jim's a special boy to us. He's our foster son. And he came to us when he was 16 years old of his own court. And he just learned to love the Lord. And, you know, God called him into the ministry. And he's also a school teacher. And he lives in Sandoval, Illinois. And he has two children. Daniel has one, a little girl, with her terrible twos. And her name's Tara. Tara the Terrible Twos. So anyway, that's kind of the life history. In 1963... God sent us to Rose Care, Illinois, and we stayed there for almost 20 years. We left there in, uh, in April of 82, and we've been on the road doing different things. God's called us into a special ministry now. Um, we didn't realize it was even in the scriptures until he called us, and there is a helps ministry. There's a government's ministry. There's various ministries. People think there's a five-fold ministry, which is true. There is a five-fold ministry, and it's for the edification of the church. But there's also other ministries that come in and help the church to grow and to be strong. And so we're in the helps ministry, and God's kept us in that. We go to different places. Uh, we were on the road evangelizing. I wish I could see your clock. I usually take about ten minutes. <laughs> uh, we're, we're on the road evangelizing for six months, and God stopped us at a little place that was having a lot of trouble. A little church didn't have a pastor. They had about 20 people, and God blessed, and in 15 months' time, we had 90-some-odd people coming, and it was really growing and thriving. Uh, God told us it was time for us to leave. We left. A couple of months later, they got a beautiful man called David Fleetwood in there, and he's doing fabulous. They say it's about 120 now that Brother David's in there, so, boy, we're praising the Lord for Brother David. And then we went from there to a real special place in Florida called Fort La uh, for, ooh, 
There's one at Fort Lauderdale, and there's another one at Boynton Beach, and we were at Boynton Beach Faith Farm. And I don't know if you ever heard of it or not. It's an alcoholic rehabilitation center. And I tell you something, that to work down there is really super special. Brother Holtzclaw not only got to preach, but he was counseling the gentleman. And I got to work in the Sunday school area, and I also was the registered nurse for the camp. Talk about experiences. We've had them. But, you know, there was so much that you could witness to God. You could tell them about the Lord. Some of them never heard his name except in profanity. And you just tell them about Jesus and how good he is. And the first thing you know, these great big old hunks of men. You kids know what I mean by a hunk. <laughs> okay, we got it on the line. <laughs> but these great big guys come in there, you know, really big and, and bruisers. And there you are sitting there maybe taking care of a scratch they got on their arm. You begin to talk about the Lord to them and how you can heal. And next thing you know, tears come down their eyes, you know. And they begin to really sob. And you say, let's pray. And they just put their hands out like that for you to hold their hands. And you begin to pray, and you'd feel God there. And a lot of them, uh, I begin to think they deliberately hurt themselves so they could come back and we could pray. Because you don't get out of my office without praying. Then just as soon as God got through with us there, he, he just deals with us this way. It's time to move. I mean to tell you, there was a call, we need you in Oklahoma. Well, when we went to Oklahoma, we had three U-Haul trucks and two cars and each truck, uh, each of the big trucks, so we had two big ones and a small one, was pulling a vehicle. There was eight children, three adults, uh, eight children, six adults, and two dogs. We had our own convoy all the way from Boynton Beach, Florida, clear out to Norman, Oklahoma. Take uh, three and a half, four days. And we had a time. And on times I had eight kids in my car. And we sang songs and praised the Lord and testified and said, I see what Jesus made. Do you see what Jesus made? So anyway, I'm a grandmother that believes you teach your children, not only your children, but your grandchildren about God. And two of our grandchildren have already found the Lord as their personal Savior. And it's just wonderful to be able to serve the Lord. And I don't feel like tonight would be appropriate time to sing. I just feel like it's kind of a good time to get acquainted. Um, my husband's over the hill, and I'm following him. Is that all right? Uh, Sister Nancy Gowens, Brother Butch, you all had him here at a dedication service, I believe. Anyhow, his daughter, she's 14 now, and she calls Brother Hostquality over the hill. And he said, well, because you're 14 not married, you're an old maid. So anyhow, that's what that pillow balloon is doing in our house because she sent it to him. But anyway, he's called over the hill. So I'm not telling you how old we are, we are but I'm following him behind over the hill. <laughs> about quality than I am quantity. All right? Now then, you can be as quiet as you want to or as noisy as you want to. I can deal in any situation. <laughs> you can make it hard for me to preach, but you can't stop me. 
Is that all right? It is really good to be here, and we just we just have enjoyed uh, fellowship with Brother Jim when our path does cross. Now, he's really acquainted with his father and his mother more than he, and enjoyed a lot of good times with Brother Ivan, and appreciate what he's been able to pass on. And I look around at the at the building and the accomplishments in a small town, and it's certainly something that you can always be proud of. Always. Just hold. How many are tired tonight? If you're not real tired, I'd like to take a walk with you through the 14th chapter of St. Matthew. All right? Now, don't get tired on me now because it's going to be quite a walk. There's a lot of things in there. This, this book, this portion of this book was probably one of the greatest inspirations to me during my years of sickness before God came and healed me. We may get a chance for testimony to that sometime before the service uh, services are over. But there's so many things in this that we would just like to take a walk through there and stop in a few places. Now, sometimes I get real excited, and then sometimes I don't. So you, you just bear with me, and I, I would like to. I would like to just be able to talk tonight and kindly save my voice. We ministered uh, eight nights straight at uh, Brother Hall's in Evansville, and I'm not used to ministering uh, that many times straight, and usually I don't have any sense anyway. I just get in and wade through it and what have you, so you stay with me. I wonder if you would be, would mind standing for the reading of God's Word, just a portion of it to get us, get us started. Why don't we just, before we get into God's Word, why don't we just stand in His presence a little while? Do you enjoy standing in the presence of the Lord? I really do. And, and I like sometimes just to come and stand and keep my big mouth shut long enough to hear what He's got to say. Amen? You know, so often we come and we do lift up hands and praise Him, and He likes that. And sometimes when we come to pray, we just tell Him all of our problems, and then we leave and we never listen to the answer. Some of the greatest moments is when you can just stand in the presence of the Lord and just feel him and let his arms go around you and let him tell you that he loves you and knows all about your problems. So let's just close our eyes and just kind of stand in the presence for a few moments. Can we just lift our hands now and just thank you? Father, we thank you tonight. We just love you, Jesus. We just appreciate you because we feel like that we're sons and daughters of a living God. Hallelujah. And we, we feel like we've been ransomed by the blood of the Lamb and dwelt by your spirit and power. Hallelujah. With all promises out here eyes. Well, thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. We appreciate you, Lord. Amen. Beginning at the first verse of the 14th chapter of St. Matthew, I want to read the first 12 verses. At that time, has everybody got it? At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard of the fame of Jesus and said unto his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. 
and therefore mighty works do shew forth themselves in him. For Herod had laid hold on John and bound him, put him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife. For John said unto him, It is not lawful for thee to have her. And when he would have put him to death, he feared the multitude, because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was kept, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Whereupon he promised with an oath to give her whatsoever she would ask. And she, being instructed of her mother, said, Give me here John Baptist's head in a charger. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, for the oath's sake, and them that sat with him at meat, he commanded at, at meat, he commanded it to be given her. And he sent and beheaded John in the prison. And his head was brought in a charger, given to the damsel. She brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took up the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. You may be seated. When we first begin to enter into this chapter, we kind of want to just shut the book and go and read somewhere else. Because in the first 12 verses, at least, it gives us some views of some very shocking events that's kind of parallel to today's lifestyle. In here, if you read it and read it to see it, you'll see events of nudity, you see events of debauchery, of lewdness, of lustfulness, of murder, and drunkenness, and of vengeance. You'll see all of that in there. You'll see an innocent man that stirred up the wrath of the woman because he told her the truth about the sin that was in her life. You'll see an innocent young girl who obeys the guilt-torn mother's hatred. And you'll see a weak man in there that's giving over to the lust of the flesh, making promises in a drunken stupor. Then you'll see the beloved prophet John the Baptist murdered. And you'll see his head placed in a silver platter. And then you'll see it given to a new teenager before a crowd of, real, of drunken men. And she then gives the head to her mother. Now, there's not anything that would turn your stomach much more than that, but yet the Bible hides nothing. It actually uh, depicts that in there. And then John's disciples come and buried the body of Jesus, or buried the body of John, and then they went and told Jesus. Now, how many of you have ever really wondered why God does what he does? Have you ever had times when you felt like he really ought to be there? If there was a time when he ought to make himself known, really, and then he just seems to be absent, he just seems to kind of withdraw himself and Whenever you really feel like you ought to be able to touch him, he doesn't seem to be anywhere present. Well, this is a view that is described here. The Bible says that John's disciples went and took up the body of John, and then they went and told Jesus. Now, if I read the Bible right, they did exactly what John had told them to do. Because John had always told them that uh, he must decrease, and that always pointed them to Jesus and said he must increase. And he pointed to him uh, to Jesus on occasion and said, Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. So you see, these disciples were doing just exactly what John had told them to do. That's transferring their discipleship, in a sense, over to Jesus after John's death. 
And when I was reading that, the thing that really grabbed me and caused me to question why Jesus does things that he does is because in the 13th verse it said, and when Jesus heard of it, I mean, when they came to him and told him about it, instead of staying there and putting his comforting hands and arms around them, instead of lifting them up, and telling them that they could follow him and, and comforting them with words in his presence. He does a startling thing. He gets in a ship into a desert place apart and leaves them. Now that's confusing, isn't it, in a sense? But yet the Bible is a reality and it's trying to tell us something in here. It's trying to reach to us and let us know in our day. I think he sees us. When this was being written, I think he saw us. I think he saw us in our problems. I think he saw us when we were struggling. And I think he saw us also when it just seemed like that Jesus just wasn't there, or at least if he was there, he just didn't care like he should care. But these individuals, in spite of all of this, in spite of everything that Jesus had done to their disappointment, and I like this, he left them, but this people then followed him. And uh, geography tells us that it's 31 miles around by land to the place where Jesus was. And instead of sitting there, as I often say with the poot's mouth, getting mad at God, or sitting there in, in, a, in our uh, loneliness heart wondering what we've done or what, what's the matter with our life or what God, uh, where he's really at, these individuals found where he was going and walked 31 miles on foot just to get in the presence of the Lord, just to get where he was at. And the Bible tells us in the 14th verse, and when Jesus saw them, he went forth. And he saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them and healed their sick. Now, there's a lot of questions today as to what moves Jesus. Well, the same thing that moved him back then. People coming to him under adverse conditions, in their sicknesses, in their grief, uh, in their afflictions or whatever, determined that in spite of the circumstances in their life, determined to get to Jesus, having confidence enough in him to move whatever mountain that was in the way or to endure and go to where he was at. You see, a lot of times he removes himself, as it were, and causes us to struggle a little farther because that makes us stronger. That increases our faith. That makes us just redouble every effort that we've had and makes us have more faith in him to realize that he's there waiting for us to get to him and there's a reason he does that because he wants us to be stronger men, women, boys, and girls and follow after him. And he was moved by that. And he's still moved by that. Anytime he sees somebody struggling under adverse conditions and still believing him and still trusting him and still just saying, well, I, I can't handle this, just redouble their effort, renew their strength and begin to walk toward Jesus and say, Lord, I don't know why, I don't understand it, but I'm going to come where you're at. And he loves that. And when we do that, It'll do the same things it did here. When they followed him, he was moved. 
with compassion toward them and he healed their sick. What you need to realize too is they wasn't satisfied just to get to him by themselves. They took their sick and they're afflicted and walked 31 miles to get in the presence of the one that had disappointed them before. You see how faith reached out and how great it was and how it paid off there when Jesus saw them coming and bringing their sick just to get to him. Now how did they know, in a sense, whether he would remove himself again or not? They actually didn't, in a sense, but they were walking, reaching out, ready to get where Jesus was and allowing nothing whatsoever to stand in their way, they were determined to get to Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but I believe we're probably living in that day and hour where Jesus sometimes seems to have withdrawn himself. Seems like he just watches over us carefully, but the answers to a lot of our questions are not available. We seek him, and we don't seem to be able to find the answer. And he's asking us to remove ourselves, walk up a little higher, get a little closer to him, believe that he's still God in adverse circumstances, believe he's God in the valley, the same as God in the mountain, and move the obstacles and get to him. And when you do, he'll be moved by it, and he'll come and heal us. Amen. He'll heal our lives. And not only that, but he'll heal the infirmities of those that we dare take with us where he's at. You see, the church is struggling today in a sense. We're struggling with our senses, with our grip. We're trying to hold on. And we're trying to, trying to find some reason as to what's happening in our lives. And sometimes we don't get the answers. And let me tell you something. Get a good grip on yourself. Get yourself by your bootstraps and lift yourself up. And the same God that came down and cleansed you by the blood of the Lamb and give you His indwelt spirit is still that same God, whether you can feel Him or not. Amen? A lot of times we go too much on emotional feelings when we've got a word here that says who he is, what he is, whether we ever feel him or not. Now I feel him and I love to feel him, but I know he's still God whether I feel a goosebump or not. Amen? I know he's still God whether I feel like shouting or not. I know he's still God whether my steps are quick or whether they're slow. He's still God. And though they were disappointed, though they didn't have all the answers, why, Jesus? Why are you doing this? We need you so desperately. We, we really need you now. Disappointment, grief, sorrow. Our leaders did. Why are you leaving us? But instead of dwelling on that, and I'm sure if they were human and they were, I'm sure that must have went through their minds. But they gathered their resources, listened to what John said. They loved him enough and believed him enough that this was the one they were supposed to trust in and, and put their faith in. And they believed him enough that they just gathered their resources, took their sick and afflicted, found out where he went, and went and got to him, moved every mountain. And when Jesus sees that, he just can't help but being moved by it. I mean, he'll come to meet you. Did you ever realize that Jesus won't allow us to make the final journey to him by, himself, by ourselves? Did you ever realize that? Did you ever look at the uh, prodigal son when he left? And he decided to come home, and his pride was broken. And yet, in spite of that, he knew that he had a better place than his father's house. And no doubt his father looked down that road for no telling how many days, how many years, I don't know. But he always had a hope that his son would come home again. And so he looked down that road looking for him. 
And finally the pride was broken and the son realized that his servants in his father's house was better than he was. So he makes his trip back home. Now I'm trying to imagine humanity. I'm sure the closer he got to home, the slower he got because he was beginning to wonder, will I be accepted? Uh, what, will, what will happen? I still have a little pride and all of that and I'm sure he got a little slower. But you ever notice in there that when the father saw him, he went out to meet him and he met him there and then he came back together. I like that because he's had to come out and meet me a lot of times. I was just a little bit concerned because I'd been away a little bit. I'd been unmindful a lot of times. I, I thought, God, I, I know I'm not right and I need to come back. My steps were a little slow and then he just seemed like he'd just see me and he'd just run up there to me and put his arms around me and say, Son, I'm glad you're coming home. Let's just go in together to the Father's house. And he did the same thing here. It says Jesus went forward. Now, I think that he just saw them coming and went to meet them because that, that he saw that they were going, not going to allow a thing to get in their way. Uh, in other words, I think that they'd made up their mind that if he'd moved again, they'd have still win where he's at. Now, this is what it takes. I mean, that's a belief. That's a faith. And that's what it's all about. It's not a faith that takes but it's a faith that gives, all right? A lot of times we have a lot of proclamations about a faith that takes. I mean, uh, have faith and God will give you this, that, and something else, and I'm not going to go into that. But a faith is a faith that takes. I mean, if something happens, we don't understand it, faith still holds on to that one individual, that God of ours, because we know what he's done for us. And we don't let any obstacle enter into our way. Now, beginning at the 15th verse, probably down... Uh, for several verses is what I feel like is the place and attitude of the denominal church today. Because Jesus had saw them, he had embraced them, he was moved with compassion toward them, and he healed their sick. And now it was evening, and his disciples came to him again, saying, This is a desert place, and the time is now past. Send the multitudes away that we may go into the village, uh, they may go into the village, and buy themselves victuals. In other words, they were looking at that vast multitude and they were saying, now, it's time to eat and we don't have enough to feed them. So you send them away, get them out of, out of our, our sight and send them away that they may go buy themselves victims. But Jesus said something again very startling. He said, they don't need to go. Paraphrasing, you give them something to eat. Now, to me, that's a challenge of any church congregation. I mean, I think God lays that right down in our laps tonight whenever we've got a suffering world and a world that don't know what they're doing and a world that, that don't know where they're going and, so on, and then they come into our presence. If we are not careful, and I've seen it happen time and time again, if we are not careful, we'll say in action, maybe not in words, well, I hardly can handle myself much less anybody else. Well, this ought not to be. And Jesus is saying here, now they don't need to go. You give them something to eat. Now that's, that's quite something when you look at it because there they were. And 17th verse said, we have but five loaves and two fishes. And of course the story is all the same. Jesus just asked us to give him what we've got. You see, he doesn't ask anything outlandish about us or of us. He simply asks us individually 
as well as collectively as a body of Christ to bring what we have to him. And he'll take it from there. But first, we have to present to him everything we have in humility and say, Lord, how am I going to feed, uh, I don't know how big this town is, surrounding area, how am I going to reach them with who we are and what we have? And Jesus is just saying, don't send them away. Don't ever send anybody away. And he's saying, just give me what you've got. Maybe the talent isn't much. I don't know. Maybe we don't feel like we're much. But Jesus doesn't ask us to be doctors of philosophy. He doesn't ask us to have the greatest choir in the world, although these things are fine. He doesn't ask us to be educated above all. He's talking about unlikely preachers. I think that's what God deals in. I think that's his specialty. Because in high school, I, I flunked speech because I couldn't get up before a class of 12 and recite my speech. I knew it, but I couldn't stand up before them. And when God called me to preach, I thought, man, that's going to be something. You're going to have to have less than 12 there or nothing's ever going to happen. But God handled it. God took care of it. He just said, boy, listen, give me what you've got. So you're a country boy. So you're a clod. So what? Just give me what you've got and I'll take care of the rest of it. And a lot of us are trying some way to give him something we don't have. But let's just be humble enough to say, Lord, here it is. It's not much. Five loaves and two fishes isn't much for a congregation like that there. But he said, just give it to me. And then he did something that, uh, like God always does, he's orderly. You see, he, he's not a type of, uh, of God that just lets things happen. He's an orderly God. And when a lot of people don't like order... But you search your Bible and he's orderly God. And he commanded 19th verse the multitude to set down the grass. And uh, one of the books tells us that he set them down in, in companies of 50 and 100. And he set them orderly down there. And he took the five loaves and two fishes, looked up to heaven and blessed it and break it. And then he turned around and gave it to his disciples. And his disciples gave it to the multitudes. You see, we're still involved. I mean, we take what we have, give it to God, He breaks it and humbles it, gives it back to us, and we, in a sense, give it to the multitude. You stand and look, why couldn't He just have give them a basket apiece and left us out of it? Because that's not the way He chose to deal with humanity. He has chosen His church, and He won't bypass His church, and He won't bypass His people. He will use us as long as we are usable. I mean, we have to give him what we've got. I don't know what would have happened if they hadn't have took what they had and give it to Jesus. I'm sure that he would have been hindered because of his own laws and the way he does. God doesn't choose to work through anything than what he purposed. And that's why the church was born. That's why you and I was born and placed into the body of Christ. It's so he could use us on the, in this world. I've said some things and I got in trouble with one preacher and I hope I don't hear, but I made a statement that when Jesus prayed his prayer of intercession, that he didn't pray one prayer for sinners. If you notice when he said that I pray not for the world, he prayed a prayer of intercession for those that belong to him, and he said, keep them. 
But I think that prayer is still following down through the centuries and lands on us today. If you've got confidence in somebody's prayer, then how much more confidence can you have in a prayer that Jesus prayed some 2,000 years ago when he prayed for everybody that become his disciple? And he said, keep them. And when that dawned upon me, I thought, now that leaves an awesome responsibility somewhere. If Jesus doesn't pray for sinners, then how do you reckon they get prayed for? That awesome responsibility lands smack dab on the shoulders of his called out ones, his ecclesia, his church. Now when we're asking God to do something, then he has already told us that's our responsibility. You want God to move on a sinner? That means you have to pray for them. That means you have to intercede for them. You want God to keep your loved one that's out there in sin? You want God to keep his arms around them? Then you intercede for them. And God intercedes for you. And that just makes the circle complete. And he says, Give, bring it here. And they, he break it, uh, blessed it and break it and gave the loaves to his disciples, disciples to the multitude and said, they all did eat and they all were filled. And then God's not a God of waste. There was just 12 baskets of fragments remained and they picked all of that up. What they did with it, I don't know, but that's a good lesson in there that God doesn't like waste. He's not a wasteful God. Let's, let's look at that right real close and ask ourselves, have we wasted much? Have we wasted time? Have we wasted energy? Have we wasted moments when uh, has our life been prayerless when it should be prayerful? Have we become silent in witnessing when we ought to witness? In other words, have we wasted precious time that we don't have very much of? I think every individual ought to ask themselves that question. He doesn't like waste. And five loaves and two fishes fed 5,000 men besides women and children. Now then, confusing? He always is. I told you about these people probably being confused here. Now here's another case. 22nd verse, And straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and go before him and to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray, and when the evening was come, he was there alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea and tossed with the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now then, just look where I left you. Miracles. I mean, that's what you hear today, and that's fine. I'm not against miracles. I've been, been recipients of miracles. But there the church representative church at that time was sitting there in a state of miraculous. I mean, they had just been with the master and watched him multiply the loaves and the feasts, and they had had a portion of that miracle. Now, what a place to live. I mean, everybody would like to live in a place like this. This is miraculous. This is wonderful. Just to walk up and watch him multiply the loaves and the fishes and he hands you out a bunch of it. You take it and feed somebody and you go back. You take it and feed somebody and all the time the master's there and he's just, just completely doing a miracle. And they're sitting down in the grass and knowing the breeze is evidently blowing and all this. What a beautiful place for our God's church to be. But I want you to notice what Jesus does. It says straightway he constrained them. That means he commanded his disciples to get into a ship. Now then, I don't know about you, 
But I think if he was God at all, and I think he was all God, I think he knew exactly what was going to be out there on that sea. So actually what this is saying is he's taking this little group of disciples that saw the miracle and he's taking them off of that grassy knoll and out of that miraculous place and heading them right into a storm. And he knew he was. How many of you ever felt that? I mean, hey, everything was fine. And what a place, man, you wanted to live all your life. And then God just almost moves you and sends you right in this time of your life. And you're wondering, why does he do this? Why does he allow this? Well, I'll tell you why he allows it. It's for us to get a hold of him a little more. It's for us to believe him a little bit more. And the, 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 the Bible says they were afraid. I'm sure they forgot all about the miracles that happened because they wasn't in that grassy hole anymore. They was in a ship, there was a storm, and the ship was sinking. So I'm sure they probably forgot about the miracle-working power of God, and it says they were afraid. In other words, this is another chapter in their life that they had to experience, and they hardly knew how to handle it because they had just got through with the miracle of God. Now, friend, when we desire to live continually on miracles we're going to be wrong. It does not happen. God sends us Himself. Now, He did it. The devil didn't do it. God did it. Sent Him right into the storm. In other words, He wanted to temper them. He wanted them to quit being babies. He wanted them to trust Him. Regardless of whether they knew why, where He was at or what He was doing, they, He wanted them to trust Him completely regardless of the circumstances that was there. Circumstances. <laughs> Man, that affects us, doesn't it? I was reading some time ago about the, the training of an elephant. You ever go to one of these places and they have those great big huge elephants staked out with a little chain and a little stake driven in the ground? They got a little thing around one of their legs. And I used to marvel at that as a kid and I thought, man, he... There he is, and he just stands there, and when he gets to that chain, pulls a little bit tight on his leg, he just quits, and one little move, and he could jerk that stake up and be free. And I often wondered, you know, how, how come he does that? And then not too long ago, I ran across a book called uh, The Training of an Elephant. And they take these elephants when they're little baby calves, if they know they're going to use them like this, and they take a big chain, wrap it around their leg, and chain them to a tree, and they do this for a week, and that little calf just squeals and kicks, and so on, tries to get loose, and he can't. And finally, finally, just one little pull of that chain, and he don't try anymore. Just one little tug, and so that means they really don't have to chain him too strong. Just anything so he could feel the tug of that thing. And then I thought, well, that elephant wasn't chained to the ground. He was chained to the circumstances, that was all. Chained to the circumstances. And God's people today, if we're not careful, we're not chained by the devil, we're chained by the circumstances that surround us. We're held there by circumstances in our life. Things that these natural eyes can see. And we forget there's a supernatural eyesight that God is wanting to give us to cause us to see through the storms of this life and through the dark clouds. And let us know that when it's all over, everything's going to be all right. And tell them he's going to handle it for us. And anyway, Jesus 
came walking on the water, and here's some words he said. Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. Now that sounds well, and I looked at that and I almost shouted, hey, that's fine. But it wasn't until I read on down that I actually saw what he was trying to tell them to do. In other words, when he told them to be of good cheer and to be happy and not be afraid, nothing had changed. I mean, the storm was still there. The black clouds were still rolling. Amen. The ship was still sinking, if it ever was. The lightning was still flashing. It wasn't until he came into the ship, that's proven in the 32nd verse, that the wind ceased and the storm stopped. So he stood there and had the audacity to tell those people to be happy when everything about them threatened their life. And he hasn't changed. He still does the same thing to us. He comes in dire circumstances. He came, comes in time of grief and depression and in times of problems. And he says, be of good cheer, child, be not afraid. And we look around for everything to dissolve and leave, and it doesn't. And we wonder if Jesus really spoke to us. Well, yes, he did. He didn't promise to change any of the circumstances out here. In other words, he don't promise to change anything except inside of us. Jesus stills the storm in our heart, and that's all that's necessary. He's trying to say in actuality that whether things change or not, we need to be glad because He's there in any circumstances. He'll never leave us, and He'll never forsake us. He's always going to be there, and He's trying His best to get us to see that we don't need to be chained to circumstances. So if He comes and says, I'm here now, don't be afraid, and we look around and nothing has changed. I mean, the guy is just as black as it always was. And our ship, so to speak, our life seems to still be going down. And yet he comes and says, now don't be afraid. Everything's going to be all right. And we've got to realize that nothing may, ch- may not change surrounding us, not for a while. But Jesus stopped it later, but he wanted them to believe him and that he was with them before he ever stopped the storm. And he wants us to believe that. He's trying desperately to get us to believe in Him, whether He creates a miracle in our life or not, whether He stops the storm clouds or not, or whether things continue to go on or not. He wants us to believe in Him, that He's going to take care of things. Peter wanted to go to Him. And Jesus said, come on. (laughs) So Peter starts out, did you ever wonder... (laughs) I get involved when I read and I, I keep, uh, I put a lot of things probably that maybe not happen, I don't know, but it's good for me. Because I, I kind of put him, his thinking the way mine would be. And you ever wonder when Peter starts to get out of the ship and he throws this little leg over here like this and all at once he sees the waves and John and all of those back there said, now Peter, <laughs> you can't walk on the water. Peter, don't get out of the boat. Hey man, you're a fool. Oh, that's not for today, Peter. You can't do this. And there he is. He's he's got one leg up like this and one. Now, that's uncomfortable. Amen? And there's a lot of us in an uncomfortable position. We're wanting to get out to Jesus, and yet it seems like we just better not do that. we got the world back there telling us it don't happen anymore. And we got our own brothers and sisters sometimes telling us it just can't be done. 
And here, here we are standing just in an uncomfortable position. And finally, finally Peter decided he had to put his full weight down. You've got to put your full weight down. You've got to land somewhere. If you're going to stay in the ship, then stay in the ship. But if you're going to walk on the water, then walk on the water. But I'm going to tell you something. Somebody said Peter had a lot of faith. But when I look at what's happening to his ship, I'm not sure how much faith he had. In other words, his ship was sinking anyway. Amen. It was going down. Was he any better off in it than he was trying to get to where Jesus was? Think about that. Now, the world's going down, friend. And we're not very good in the world. And it looks like it's a pretty stormy place. And maybe we can't walk on the water. I mean, maybe the world says we can't. But if Jesus is out there, and if he says, come, then let's make every effort we can to get there to him. Remember the man in his first plane ride. He didn't like to fly. Man, he was afraid. And his friend finally talked him into going up with him. So he went up with him, and then he came back down. Barely got out of the thing, and his friend said, Well, that wasn't so bad, was it? How'd you like it? He said, It wasn't too bad at all, but I want you to know this one thing. I never did put my full weight down in that seat. And that's the way with a lot of us. We never get our full weight down in that seat. We, we just imagine if we just kind of keep our weight off of there, things won't be so bad. But we need our full weight down. I mean, we need to take God and His Word, realize what He says, and put our full weight down. It says, when he saw the wind was boisterous, he was afraid, beginning to sink, and then he just cried one simple little thing, Lord, save me. And immediately, Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and walked back to the ship with him, one step at a time. Old McGuffey's reader, probably none of you here old enough to know about McGuffey's reader, but old McGuffey's reader had the story of a little clock that just quit ticking. And uh, old grandfather clock come up and said, little clock, how come you quit? Little clock just moaned and said, I simply cannot tick 31,536,000 times. That's all. I can't do it. The grandfather clock said, well, little clock, I'll tell you, you don't have to tick 31,536,000 times all at once. Just one tick at a time. And that's all we have to do, one step at a time. We don't have to cover the complete distance, but we do have to start out, and we do have to walk one step at a time toward Jesus. We're living, no doubt, in a very trying and testing time. And there is scriptures that's relevant to these times that tell us what Jesus is trying to do to us and what he's trying to do for us. And he's trying to increase our faith He's trying to get us out of the idea that he's a Santa Claus, that he just drops by and gives us a present every once in a while to keep us happy. He's trying to get us to know that he is our Heavenly Father and that there's some things that's not good for us. And if it's not, he's not going to give them to us. And we're going to understand. And one of these days when we do things out of fear for him. You know, when I was a little, when I was growing up, there was times when I did things out of fear of Dad. I knew I'd get a whipping. I mean, I knew he'd whip me if I didn't do it. And then there came a time when I was bigger than Dad. And I...